You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. North Korea's Lazarus Group is active against targets in India. A suspected Chinese advanced persistent threat group is exploiting a Windows accessibility feature. Sophos warns of fleeceware. U.S. DNI testifies before the House Intelligence Committee. The Talk Talk hacker and an alleged accomplice are indicted on U.S. charges. And notes on the chameleon spam campaign. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, September 26, 2019. Pyongyang's operators have turned up again in South Asian networks. Researchers at the Kaspersky security firm say they've found renewed campaigns by DTRAC and the related ATM DTRAC in India. Both have been associated with North Korea's Lazarus Group. The objectives are familiar, a combination of espionage and direct theft. Kaspersky says the operations are using variants of code that go back at least to the Dark Soul campaign of 2013. The Lazarus Group, recently the subject of increasingly stringent U.S. sanctions, has been widely accused of engaging in cybercrime to shore up North Korea's struggling finances. BlackBerry Silence has released its study of a suspected Chinese advanced persistent threat group that's using the open-source PC share backdoor modified for sideloading by a legitimate NVIDIA application. Once established, the attackers run a version of the Narrator ease-of-access application, Fake Narrator, to achieve system-level access. The APT is interested in exfiltrating sensitive data, conducting reconnaissance, and moving laterally across networks. The researchers see some possible connection with the Tropic Trooper threat actor, a group that's been mostly active against targets in Taiwan and the Philippines, but they carefully avoid firm attribution. The MITRE attack list describes Tropic Trooper as an unaffiliated threat group. It's known to have been active since 2015. Sophos calls it fleeceware. They're referring to Android apps that provide functionality freely available elsewhere, and that then hit users with big fees after expiration of a trial period should the users miss some hoops in their cancellation of the app. Why aren't these simply another instance of potentially unwanted programs? Sophos says they occupy a kind of gray area. The apps aren't malicious, and they offer some genuine functionality, but it's functionality that's available either cheaply or freely elsewhere. It's customary in the Play Store ecosystem to make apps available to users free for a defined trial period. Normally, if the users don't cancel the app at the end of the trial, they'll be charged the few dollars the app cost. The apps Sophos is talking about don't charge just a couple of bucks. They take hundreds from the user. So, use free trials with caution. 
When I was a kid growing up near Fort Meade, the parents of some of my schoolmates had jobs they couldn't talk about. If you asked them what they did for a living, they would say, I work for the government, with a tone that lets you know the conversation was ending right there. And of course, for decades, the running joke was that NSA stood for no such agency. Well, times have changed. NSA has an Instagram page. And they and the Department of Justice are actively competing for the best cybersecurity talent out there. It's been a remarkable shift to see. Greg Martin is CEO of cybersecurity company JASK, and he shares these insights on the change. If you go back to the early 90s, a lot of the DOJ early work with hackers was around arresting them and then um, working with those arrested individuals who are caught either hacking or uh, involved in some type of cyber crime or, or cybersecurity scheme and uh, turn them into uh, you know, either informants or uh, pseudo uh, FBI agents to essentially work on their behalf. Did we reach a point where there was collaboration or was there a healthy tension between them? Was there mutual respect? How would you describe it? Yeah, well, it was very much like, uh, you know, the catch me if you can story, Mm. uh, if you recall. But, um, you know, I think what happened is that cybercrime grew to be such a, a huge issue that I think that tactic of Uh, trying to convert would-be hackers into good guys uh, just faded over time with the the surge in cybercrime, the amount of attacks, and the fact that many of them were emanating from outside the country. Uh, They really had to start, uh, you know, working on new programs. Today, the Department of Defense uh, and the DOJ have taken huge strides to try to change their interaction with the hacker community. Uh, One of the big things that uh, you can point to is last year, the DOD released this Hack the Pentagon, which was a crowdsource bug bounty uh, where they were inviting hackers from anywhere in the world uh, to find vulnerabilities in government and DOD systems. Now, this is a, a huge departure from how we did things in the past, where if you hacked into a government website, well, you could expect that the FBI would be knocking on your door and it would not be a very good outcome for that individual, whether mm-hmm. they had good intentions or not. Well, this has totally changed in the past year. Does the DOJ find itself at a disadvantage uh, compared to private industry when it comes to uh, being able to provide, for example, salaries in the, in the competitive market? Yeah, I mean, that's been a huge issue. Um, so uh, the DOJ has a very capable cyber program, but I think talent is the, the big issue that they struggle with. Um, so part of it is the culture and the mission uh, is is what they've used and focused on to attract people. You know, do you want to go out and, um, you know, catch bad guys? Do you want to keep people safe? Do you want to keep our government safe? Um, you know, this is something that has attracted a lot of people out of college who have, you know, cybersecurity skills. Uh, unfortunately, when those individuals are looking for at an offer from a Facebook or a Google uh, for sometimes double the amount of money that they would get at a uh, upper level salary in the U.S. government, you know, it makes it a very hard task for the government to be able to compete. And that's going to remain a challenge. What about from a, a marketing and PR point of view of, of the, the public perception uh, that working in a government situation is going to be something desirable, that, that they have unique things to offer that you might not find out in, in industry? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've been through some of that myself in my uh, career and background, and I have a lots of friends that have started cybersecurity companies, and they came from uh, NSA and groups like the TAO program, where they're out, you know, doing offensive hacking for the government. Um, I think it's an incredible experience, and it's uh, you know a way that you can serve your country uh, without holding a gun in your hand. And I think it's going to remain very attractive for for people to come. And uh, I think it's um, it's a cool way for folks to start their career if they have an interest in cybersecurity and they're coming out of college. I think uh, working for DoD, working for uh, DOJ or NSA on cybercrime, I think it's a it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, it, it really is an interesting shift, isn't it? I mean, both culturally, but, but also I suppose there are lots of practical things that they have to deal with as well. You know, like you mentioned, uh, some of the, the things that previously would have been prohibitions might have kept you from getting a clearance. Perhaps they have to um, ease up on some of those uh, requirements. Yeah, absolutely. One of them is marijuana use. I think yeah. if you're going to hire the top hackers in the world, uh, you have to lower your bar a little bit uh, in some of those areas. But I think uh, all in all, the government is improving in their way that they interact with the hacker community. I think they're trying very hard. And uh, look, this is out of necessity. Uh, we are really uh, fighting a losing battle every day. And I think that if we don't take some radical steps to try to change and really recruit the top talent to get ahead, um, you know, it, it, it's really a national security issue at this point. That's Greg Martin. He's CEO of cybersecurity company JASC. Acting U.S. Director of National Intelligence McGuire testified this morning before the House Intelligence Committee concerning a whistleblower's complaint concerning U.S.-Ukrainian presidential interactions. The complaint centers on a phone conversation between U.S. President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky its contents, and subsequent classification. Much of the discussion centered on whether the complaint of the whistleblower, whose identity is being properly protected, was disclosed to Congress as expeditiously as the law requires. The transcript of the conversation has been duly released. Acting DNI McGuire has said, in response to questions from Representative Hurd, Republican of Texas, that great power competition has largely moved to cyberspace. We'll see how the matter develops and what implications it might have for cybersecurity in particular. We send out a bravo to MSASoft and Kaspersky, who have released decryptors for WannaCry Fake, Yatron, and FortuneCrypt ransomware. MSASoft took care of WannaCry Fake. Kaspersky's decryptors work against Yatron and FortuneCrypt. A British teenager who was convicted of the TalkTalk hack and received a sentence of 20 months is expected to face U.S. charges as well. Elliot Gunton, who's still only 19, was indicted on U.S. federal charges related to fraud and aggravated identity theft. The indictment also charges Anthony Nashatka, a U.S. citizen. The two are alleged to have defrauded customers of the Ether Delta cryptocurrency exchange by redirecting customers to a bogus version of Ether Delta's site where their account credentials and private keys were stolen. Finally, security firm Trustwave's Spider Labs is tracking a spam campaign, Chameleon, that's shown the changeable appearance of its namesake. The messages it sends use randomized headers, the templates are also frequently changed, and the links, if you follow them, which of course you shouldn't, move through frequent redirections. Spider Labs says that the messages look like phishing, but in fact they generally don't seem to be that at all. The subject lines will be familiar. Remember me, I'm your ex-colleague. Or, hi, do you need a job? Well, hey, who doesn't? 
or the ever-popular variations on critical security alert. This is why the apparent failure to deliver a typical hook inside the fish bait is curious. The ultimate direction of all the redirections has generally been equally familiar, either bogus Canadian pharmacy pages, because of course it's a known fact on the internet that you can get Viagra without a prescription in Saskatoon, or so I'm told. Or, wait for it, sites that will show you how to get rich with Bitcoin. Trustwave says on their blog that they'll be keeping an eye on Chameleon. In the meantime, don't take the fish bait. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Um, I wanted to talk today about hashing emails um, and this whole notion that hashes can be reversed and kind of the, the where does hashing where does hashing leave us when it comes to actually providing any sorts of any sort of privacy or anonymity? Can you give us a little lesson here? Uh, hash functions actually are ubiquitous now. They're used in all kinds of uh, applications. I, I think what you're referring to is hashing email addresses uh, as a way to provide some kind of pseudonymity or, or anonymity for uh, individual users. And uh, w- the interesting thing about these hash functions is that a well-designed cryptographic hash function is actually supposed to be non-invertible, meaning that if I hash some value and then present you the output, uh, you should not be able to figure out uh, from the output what the input was. Now, the problem with that is that it's true that these hash functions are uninvertible, but anybody can compute them. They're not keyed. They're not like encryption schemes. And so anybody, they're public algorithms. Anybody can go ahead and evaluate them. And so the problem is that they, uh, even though the hash function itself is uninvertible, an attacker who's presented with a hash output but knows that the input was chosen from a small set of possibilities can enumerate over all the possibilities 
compute all the hashes and then find out uh, which one corresponds to the output it was given. So if someone knows what my email address is, they could somehow uh, align that with a hash of it and then use that to track me around the Internet, for example? Well, exactly. So, I mean, to take the simple example, like you were mentioning, uh, if I hash your email address and give it to somebody, uh, just by looking at that value, you know, they, they have no way to tell that it corresponds to your address. But if they wanted to verify whether it did indeed correspond to your address, all they would have to do is compute the hash of your email address themselves and then check whether the output matches. Uh, these hash functions are deterministic. They always give the same output when run on the same input. And so that would allow them to verify that this value did indeed correspond to a hash of your email address. Now, in a more general scenario, one way to see this, for example, is to consider what would happen if uh, somebody presented you with a hash of somebody's social security number. So uh, a priori, you don't know their, that person's social security number. You'd have no way to verify uh, whether the output you got you know, really corresponded to their social security number or not. But on the other hand, social security numbers are only nine digits long. And so somebody could enumerate over all possible nine-digit social security numbers, hash each one of those, and then see which of those uh, hashed results corresponded to the value they were given. And in that way, they could essentially end up reversing uh, the hash value they were given and de-anonymizing that particular individual. And the same thing would apply to email addresses as well. Uh, I saw an estimate recently that the number of uh, valid email addresses is on the order of about 5 billion. And so hashing all 5 billion of those possible addresses and seeing what those hash values corresponded to would allow you then to de-anonymize uh, a hash value that you were presented with. Now, is this a matter where once you've reversed one hash, does it get quicker or easier to, to as, as you go? Does each one you, you sort of decode, does it make it a little easier to do the next one, or, or is there a randomness built in? No, actually, the, uh, it, it's not the case. So these hash values are all essentially uh, independent. And so uh, figuring out the value that corresponds to one person, person's hash doesn't necessarily help you with the other one. But if you think about it, though, uh, if I give you, uh, if, if you're given two different hash values, and in the process, let's, if we go back to the social security number example, if in the process of hashing all those uh, nine-digit social security numbers, you're going to end up finding both of those values. So uh, in essence, the, the, the work that you're doing in hashing all those SSNs is going to allow you then to actually uh, end up inverting all those hash values. So from that point of view, you can amortize the work and basically figure out everything in one go. Right, right. I guess the total set of possible numbers decreases each time you, you, get, you get one. Well, it's basically you're doing everything. And so once you do everything, you can, you can break anything. So given that this is the case, what are people doing to mitigate this possibility? Well, you have a similar situation that comes up with uh, hashed passwords. So very often servers will store hashed passwords of the users on their site, and you run into the same sort of problem because if a server stores the hash of somebody's password and an attacker might guess, let's say, that that password is an, is an eight-character password, they can enumerate over all possible eight-character passwords and then figure out what your password was after being given your hash. And so one thing that you can do to, to kind of um, make it harder for the attacker is to make sure that the work they invest in figuring out one user's password is not going to be of any uh, benefit to them in figuring out another user's password. And the technique that's done to, uh, to ensure that is called salting. So what you do is you basically pick a random salt per user, a random value for every user, and you compute the hash of the user's password along with the salt value that you've chosen. And this means that the attacker can still do the same kind of a brute force attack like before, but now it's going to have to be hashing uh, all possible passwords along with one particular user's salt. And that's not going to help it figure out the uh, password that results in uh, the hash 
involving another person's salt. And so this makes it just harder for the attacker. It doesn't make it any harder to crack one user's password, but it means that now they have to spend the same amount of work to crack each user's password uh, at the server. Well, as always, uh, thanks for explaining it to us. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.